Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Thanks for joining us this morning. So happy to see all of you. We're uh, finishing up a series we've been going through for a few weeks. If you've not been with us, you can go back and check these out online. But we've been through a series, a four-part series called The Four Priorities of Gospel Saturation. We're trying to be a part of the kind of church and the kind of church movement that gets very serious about what God's trying to do in our city and our country and our communities. That God has a plan. His kingdom come has been His word from the very beginning. And that He desires us to be a part of this, this thing that we've entitled gospel saturation. That means it's soaking through, permeating every part of what we do. Uh, one definition given from Christ together is that a gospel saturation is the church owning the lostness of an identified people in a defined place, ensuring that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus where we live learn, work, and play. That that's what it would look like if somehow, like a sponge, we soaked up every single place we lived, learned, worked, and played. That would really encompass just about everything we do in this life. This comes from the Great Commission, and Matthew 28 speaks of that. But also in Mark 16, Jesus says in verse 15, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is God's mission for us. We call it the great commission. That is, we've been commissioned to do this as believers in Christ. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of what it means to be transformed, that we can't even come close to being a part of this kind of church until we ourselves are transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, and that we're mobilized for mission, and then we can do this crazy thing where we begin to collaborate with not only the fellow believers we have here in this room, but all throughout the town. That there's a lot of different churches throughout our city full of believers where we could be a part of a greater movement, the Big C Church in our city. Now today, we're going to talk about a strategy. And it's going to be fun, right? The title is Multiplication Over Addition, and some of you just went, not math. We're not going to be doing math in here. We're not doing math programs. Uh, What we are, however, going to be doing is talking about really Christ's strategy, God's strategy from the very top, and that He was always about a multiplying movement, and that we know this, what little, and you may not be the greatest math person, some of you are much better than others in the room, there's, I find that every couple, in fact, every couple I'm looking at, you know, one of you is better than the other, and we know, and and the two of you know, it's significant, that's just what God does, typically He puts, uh, as, as Dave Ramsey puts, He puts the big spender with the free spirit, or, or the free spirit with the nerd, really, really, is what happens. So one's a nerd and one's a free spirit. And normally the nerds are all mathy and stuff. But anyway, we're going to dig into this idea of multiplication. And I want to show you a, a brief clip uh, because I think it'll kind of describe where we're going to spend the day. So let's spend just about two or three minutes here watching this. Hit, hit the lights, too. Would you rather have one million dollars? or one penny doubled every day for 30 days. You remember this question from math class, right? This is when we all learned the power of compound interest and exponential growth. At the end of 30 days, that doubled penny becomes just over $5 million. Turns out, the same concept applies to missions. 
Imagine you filled a football stadium with 100,000 people for a gospel outreach event, and 20% of them came to know Christ. That day, 20,000 people would come into the kingdom. If you did that every day for a year, over 7 million people would come to faith. That sounds pretty great, right? Here's the question, though. If you kept that pace of 7 million people each year, how long would it take to reach the world's population of 8 billion people? Over 1,000 years. 1,095 to be exact. A 100,000-person outreach event every day for 1,000 years? From a pure number standpoint, mass evangelism will not reach the world for Christ in our lifetime. What about a different strategy inspired by that original math problem? Instead of preaching to 100,000 people every day, suppose you made one disciple each year, focused on their development, and equipped them to make their own new disciple every year. At the end of the first year, you would have two followers of Jesus, you and your disciple. At the end of the second year, you would have four, eight the third year, 16 the fourth, and so on, 32, 64, 128. How many years would it take to disciple the world using this strategy? 34 years. Do the math. Something profound happens when we take a multiplication mindset. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He continues by instructing us to teach those disciples to obey everything he commanded us. What was his final command? Go and make disciples. So our role is to make disciples that obey the command to make disciples that obey the command to make disciples. We're to go to all nations and make disciple-making disciples. That's multiplication. Reach the few in order to reach the many. What if you didn't feel the burden to preach to an entire village or city or country, but instead were faithful to the simple multiplication principles of the Great Commission? The entire world could be discipled in our generation if we started with just one. What about you? How might God want you to be involved in making disciples that make disciples and seeing movements of Jesus among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Would you rather fill a stadium every day for the next thousand years or commit to making one disciple this year? Let's do this together until all have heard, starting with discipling one. So, who's your one? Okay, so a lot, a little bit. There was a little bit of math in there, okay? A little bit of math. But uh, I think you understood the principle, right? It was very clear, and it's very exciting. Um, I hope at the same time, believers in the room, I hope that it's also encouraging um, because... I think for myself, I don't know how you feel personally, I often feel the weight of that calling, that great commission, and feel like I can't touch it. I can't make an effect. But based on Christ's strategy, actually, we make a huge difference if we just commit to one person for, for a year. And, and that, that's like pouring yourself out. In fact, if we think about who Jesus was and what he did, that's... That's really what he was all about. Spent several years with 12 guys. Three of them even closer. And it blew up the world, right? It changed the world. And so what would it look like to just be a part of a church that gets very serious about multiplication? And that means very serious about making disciples. And now you might be saying to yourself, you might be thinking, okay, 
How, how, what does this have to do to me? Well, the first question you should ask yourself today is, have I personally decided to follow Jesus for myself? repented of my sin and made the decision to follow Christ with my life. That's step one. There's no sense in making disciples if you are not one yourself. And so we start there. We talked in length about this a couple of weeks ago in transformation. We have to be transformed before we can possibly make disciples. But for those of you in the room who are asking, okay, how do I do this for myself? How do I begin to make disciples? Well, the question is, have you personally yourself been mentored? Have you been discipled? Do you know what it looks like to even try to do this? Well, we're going to get into a lot of nitty gritty on all of this today. And and I promise we're going to have a great time together because we're going to be in the book of Acts where really this this is the whole picture of how the church really took off how this, all of these principles we've been talking about for four weeks now, how they all came into play in the first century. The Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, this is the, basically the story of the church and how, how you and I are sitting in this room right now. Really, when we go back and look at Peter and Paul and these early apostles that, that laid down everything in order that we might believe 2,000 years later. We're going to be in the book of Acts, but I want to remind you of something that this has always been a strategy of Christ, this multiplication, this starting right where you are and then expanding from there. Look what Christ says in Acts 1.8. This one's probably pretty familiar to you. He, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That is right where you live, right where you are right now. And then in all Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. This is his expansion, multiplication kind of strategy. So where do we begin? Well, that question maybe isn't so hard. Maybe we've made it too complex. Some, maybe we've heard a, a mission talk at one point and we thought, do I need to go to like Russia or something? Well, maybe, maybe. I'm not saying the Lord is not calling you to that. He very well may be. But here's I know something for sure. He's called you to your Jerusalem. Where do you live? Do your kids know Christ? Do your parents? Have you at least shared the gospel with them? Your neighbors? Where do you work? Those things are clear in the scripture. Who's your one? That's something for you to chew on today. Who's my one? If I was to just really pour into somebody this year, who would it be? In the book of Acts, we see Luke recording how these early believers obeyed Christ's command to be a multiplying church. And that's what I want to be a part of. I pray that's what you're here for, is that we would be a church about the multiplication, about the kingdom and and gospel move of God. And we can be that church if we'll follow the Lord's call and His His Word as well. So we're going to be in this text. I believe we're going to see four really clear marks. I made it easy on us today. We've got one verse. One whole verse. Like, I joke that this is kind of going Spurgeon on you a little bit. He was a one-verser kind of dude. uh, Although he would jump all over the text once he went there. But I'm going to do that a little bit. Bear with me. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, just verse 31. And this is some amazing stuff that the Lord is doing here. So read with me. It says in Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. God bless the reading of His Word. Amen. Let's discuss together the four marks of a multiplying church. There are four things here described, and this is what 
the Bible says. It says that the church in that day multiplied. Here's the first that I see jumping off the page. It says that this church had peace. The peace of Christ, I might argue. It had peace. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that our country has peace. Maybe you would. I don't know how you would make that argument, but you go right ahead. I'm not sure that the world has peace. It's not just our country. The world is on fire a lot. It has been for years and years. It's, let's not think, oh, our generation is really, really facing it. No, there, there's been a lot. There's been wars and talks of wars, and there's been chaos in this world since Adam and Eve, I might argue. There's not a general sense of peace. This, this word peace in fact, the way it's on display here is unique to what Christ has done. This is unique. This kind of peace is something special. It says that this caused multiplication. That's the idea of an increase and abounding. I would argue as we begin these four marks that we need a new definition of success. Just a whole new definition. And I would take this for your personal life too. That success doesn't look quite like maybe we've, we've been thinking. So as a church, one thing that's pretty clear is we, we need to work harder on caring less and less about how many people are in these seats. Because there might be a good reason for it. It might be that we keep sending our best. It, it might be, and not that you guys aren't the best. That just means you might, you might not be here for a while. You know, if we, if we have a habit of sending our best, then you might not stay. You know, And I'm okay with that. That more and more I'm going to be okay with the fact that we're not a church that's serious about addition. We're serious about the multiplying kingdom of God. And that means I care more about releasing assets. I don't care so much that we keep hoarding and taking in and being bigger and making more. But rather that people are becoming discipled. And that means a going out. And that's a great thing. And we have to learn to celebrate that. You know, sometimes church, and this isn't like a knock on you, but sometimes we get up here and we begin worship, and there's one family sitting out here. A lot of times it's that family right in there. The Bolanders will be sitting right in the middle there. And, and you know, it's because for whatever reason, people just, uh, they, they, they come and go at different times. And I'm not picking on you today, but I'm just, here's the thing. Like when we start some days, we're just looking at a couple eyeballs. And we go, hmm, what are we doing? <laughs> like, maybe we think that. I used to think that a lot more. It doesn't happen as much now. You, y'all know I preached to 11 people one time when we were at Rocky Mount Academy. And we had 20 kids. So half of our volunteers were in the back working on children. I'm preaching to literally like a dozen people. And I have to tell myself in moments like that, what am I doing this for? Am I doing it for the glory of man or am I doing it for Christ Jesus? And what's the purpose anyway? Is it so that I can be great or that this church can be something great? No, it's that Christ's church could be great. The bride of Christ, who I'm just a part of. This multiplication, I want to see it in my lifetime. And it begins with peace. It begins here with the peace of Christ. This word in the Greek is arene. It's the closest word they have to the Hebrew word shalom. You've probably heard that word, shalom. This is the idea of a peace that kind of transcends understanding, as the Bible puts it. The kind of peace that orders your life. The kind of peace really in Christ Jesus that causes you to reconcile to people that normally the world would say you should shun them. 
You, you need to put them out because they have greatly wronged you. And yet the peace of Christ calms your soul. Calms your spirit and makes you go, you know what? I got a greater purpose than being angry at this person. As I used to hear growing up, you can either be bitter or you can be better. And a lot of us turn to bitterness, but I got, I got news, friends. That's not the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ makes us go, I forgive. I take a deep breath and go, you know what? Especially if it's a fellow brother or sister in Christ, I go, okay, the peace of Christ tells me that I need to reconcile. Even if they're unwilling to, to, to tell me that they're sorry, I still forgive. Even beyond that. The peace of Christ which transcends. In Christianity, in fact, the Strong's says that this is a tranquil state of the soul, assured in salvation. So there's not just the peace with neighbor, but the peace with God that we can only have in Christ Jesus. That there's maybe a general sense of fear among people that I don't know what's next. I don't even know what tomorrow looks like. And so there's maybe underneath is a, is a fear people have and they have no peace because they don't know Christ. This is the kind of peace that comes with faith. That we know where the Lord is leading us and where we will finish. This is the kind of church. This word church here, as throughout the New Testament, is the word ecclesia. If you know Spanish, it's iglesia. They take that right from the Greek. This is the idea of called out ones. That's who you are. If you call yourself part of this church, you are the called out ones. That means this isn't a place to just come and hang out. Although that's cool, we call that fellowship, right? It's a good place to come and encourage one another and be together, and that's important. But you're the called out ones, the ones sent on mission. Now, speaking of this peace and this unity, you know the church has had some internal conflicts for a very long time. You hear this joke sometimes that churches will argue over the color of the carpet. You've ever heard this joke? Like churches will split over, oh, we've had a building campaign. We want it blue. Well, we want it red. I think there's some truth to that. I think that's probably happened in many places that People have these strong opinions about how we should paint the walls. Um, And we might think, you know, we're terribly messed up that that's who we are. Well, you know, people have been that way for a long time. I'll take you to the book of of Acts, chapter 6. Here's an argument they were having in the first century. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, these people are Christians, okay? This, the Hebrews are the Judeo-Christians, so they're in a camp of people that think we still need to follow the customs of the Jewish. And then the Hellenists, Hellen, Hellenistic is to be Greek-minded. So these are a a Greek-type Christian. They're, they're perhaps more modern in their approach. These people are arguing, saying that our widows are the only ones getting neglected. You're doing this distribution of food, and yet you're leaving out our people. And what did the twelve do? They summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. So they were already having disputes about what to do with food. Okay, that seems minor, right? We, we argue about minor stuff sometimes and it's been happening for 2,000 years. 
It happens in small groups sometimes. Those of you who have attended some of our small groups, you know, we argue about the food every once in a while, like who's bringing what? You didn't bring it, you know, and then, then everything's botched because somebody forgot the meat for taco night. You can't do taco night with no meat, all right? I don't think that's specifically happened. That's just what came to my mind. Our, our group's on Tuesday nights, so we do Taco Tuesdays quite a bit. But anyway, they've been, there's been disputes and disunity. Interesting thing here, these ones that they picked were called deacons. The word deacon, in fact, means servant. The whole idea of a, a deaconhood is those who would serve so that the pastors could continue in prayer in the ministry of the word. The result though, the result of them working together and finding the peace of Christ was this. Look at chapter 6 verse 7. It says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. You know what the result is of people maintaining the peace, maintaining unity? Multiplication. In fact, I would argue this is the thing that makes us stand out greater than a lot of things. Greater than our words to others. When, when this church becomes known in the city as a place where people love each other, where people forgive, they reconcile, where people have a sense of the peace of Christ, that is more popular than even the words that come from our mouths. Jesus makes this claim, and I believe it's true because Jesus is... He speaks truth and He says, They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And when we maintain the peace, when we reconcile where others would fall apart, when the world looks at that and goes, How? How are you maintaining the peace, the unity? We would say, Well, that peace doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. It comes from Christ Himself. This Acts story that we're, we're chewing on today, this peace that's come, something has happened here. The church has grown. The church is multiplying. The peace that they're experiencing is also physical. Something, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll start to see that as the gospel goes out, also the persecution shows up. And you might see this in your personal life, that as you get more serious about your faith, it seems like there's obstacles in the way. And that may be the evil one that's possible. It could be a lot of different things that begin to present obstacles in your life. As the church here in the book of Acts begins to spread through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now it's starting to go into the Greek world. As that begins to happen, all of the sudden persecution, and some of it great. The first martyr, his name was Stephen. He's, he's stoned to death just a few verses prior to this. This, this man named Saul has begun to persecute the church. In a powerful way. He, he has great zeal. We know him as Paul. The Lord gets a hold of his life on the road to Damascus just before the text we're dealing with here. And the result is not only the writing of like a half of the New Testament, but also a peace. That should give you some comfort, church. It should give you some comfort to know that even in the midst of whatever these obstacles are, that God's still on the move and that His mission will bring peace. Maybe not in the way you expected. I can imagine that when Saul showed up the first time to church, the people were freaking out. Just imagine that. Imagine, for instance, imagine the governor of our state or something, has vocally said, no more church. He's trying to shut it down. He's militant against what we're doing. I'm not saying this is true, but just imagine this were true. And then all of a sudden, you hear, oh, he came to faith and he shows up in your door. 
You're like, I'd be a little like, what's he here for? Is he going to call the cops on us? Like, what's he up to? In a, in a much more strong way, this is what Paul does and he shows up. And so the people couldn't have expected that. That, the, that God would get a hold of this man. And that was what he did. The peace of Christ. The first mark. Church, I'm convinced of this. If we don't be the kind of people that have peace, the peace of Christ, we can't, we can't even touch this other stuff. We might as well forget about it. We might as well forget about being the kind of church that's well-equipped for mission. If we can't even get along, if we can't even have unity, if we can't even have peace, that shows a heart condition that's already wrong, that the peace of Christ is not in us. Do you have this first mark? Peace in your life? The second is this. The second mark of the multiplying church is the equipping of the saints. Here you see the word, they were built up. They had peace and they were being built up. The word built up there is oikodomeo, which is this idea, oikos means house. And dome, you hear the other word, it kind of sounds like dome, right? It's, it's the idea of putting the roof on the house, okay? So I don't know if this is how it works in construction. I've not paid attention, honestly, to how houses get thrown up, you know, but... The sense of this word is that when you put the, the roof on, the project's done. I don't know how th- that's how it really works, but in this sense, that's what the word means, is that the finished product, they are being built up. They are finding their completion in Christ. The, the roof is being put on the house. This thing that God is building, He is bringing to perfection. The, the, the word can mean to edify, to encourage, to equip, to, abro- to promote growth in Christian wisdom. The members of the church here are being discipled in such a way that the roof is getting put on the house. <laughs> Some of the some of the facades getting cleaned up. One of our, our statements here at the church, and I, I recite it quite often, and I think people like it. Come just as you are and be forever changed by the love of Jesus. Like at the initial onset, you're like, well, I can just walk in the door however. And that's so true. We've had people come here in their pajamas before, which kind of surprised me. But come just as you are. Oh, I, That's the best you could do today. You just rolled out of bed. Well, come on, you know, come on with your bad self. I feel like people don't always pay attention to the second part of that statement. There is a conjunction there and be forever changed. What that means is equipping. That means you come in here. Perhaps some of you, you ain't even got walls up yet. We're we're still looking for foundation. And that's okay. Come just as you are. But understand this. The love of Christ begins to build a foundation in your life. And that the, the goal of the church has always been the equipping of the saints. Putting the roof on the house and sending you out for the Great Commission. That's not just for super Christians. Like I don't know how that has happened over time. It's like at one point in time, the Protestant Reformation happened where we were trying to get away from elitist kind of Christianity. And then over the next hundred years, we kind of came back to that where there's only certain people that really know how to do missions. And yet that's not true. That's not the gospel. Where a bunch of fishermen and, and tax collectors and randos went out and changed the world. That's the mission of God. The equipping of the saints. 
Ellicott, one of the commentator writers on this, he says, describing an orderly and continuous growth. This is the superstructure raised wisely upon the right foundation. This is the idea of equipping, encouraging, edifying. Now, Scripture is pretty clear on this. I could go to a lot of different places. The one that that was most clear, I think, as I I pondered this this week is in Ephesians chapter 4. This is what Christ has said in verse 11. These are the gifts that Christ has given the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. And what was their responsibility? To equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies. So clever, they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of this body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. What's our calling? Church, what's our calling? To equip. To equip. As leaders, as church leaders, that's our, that's our whole goal. That's why we have a job to equip for ministry. It's nice that we have guitars and we do all this worship stuff. That's, that's part of, of coming to the Lord with praise. That's part of even King David and the, and the, the people of, of the Israelite nation. They, they worshiped with hymns and, and lyres and harps and there's that. But underneath all that, the whole reasoning behind me getting up here and speaking for 30 or so, or so minutes, the whole reason to get up here and do this is that we might what? Be equipped. That means the mission of God This is just inspiration here. The mission's happening tomorrow. It's happening when you leave. It's happening at your workplaces. That's that's where the rubber really hits the road. And the Apostle Paul teaches this to Timothy. And I was very, very unsure of whether I wanted to preach this one today, but I've preached it quite a few times. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2. Where he says to Timothy, And these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. This is the strategy of the gospel. And trust it to faithful or reliable people. Now there's a bit of information there that's helpful for you, friend. If you want to be a part of what Christ is doing in His church, in your lifetime, and what He wants to do in your life, And trust it to faithful people. Guess what you run into sometimes? Unfaithful people. Some of you are thinking, sometimes I feel like that's like 100% of the time I run into unreliable people. Well, that may be true. Uh, You may work in a difficult place. You might be surrounded by a lot of uh, unfaithful, as you will, people. But what does that really mean? What does that term even mean? Does it mean these people are like super far from God? No. Unfaithful would be the idea of you wasting your time. It would be the idea, as Jesus put, casting your pearls before swine. That's the sense that you could speak all day to this person. You could work for months and months. 
and they're going to have the same questions and they're not going to change. That's an unreliable person. But this, somebody in your life, they might be very far from God. They might have very challenging questions. This might be a really difficult time for them right now, but they may listen. That's reliable. That's faithful. Spend time with that person. It doesn't, it doesn't matter the distance. It doesn't matter how much they're struggling. What really matters in this statement is, are they listening? And if they are, continue. Spend time with them. Push harder. One mark, peace. The second mark, equip. Now we have something that we have unpacked here as a church. And I recognize there's a few of you that are going to give, give me a hard time after church. Please do so. Remind me again. But we do something here called Life on Life Discipleship. If you signed up and we haven't hooked you up yet, we need to figure that out. I know who you are and I know who's going to come up to me afterwards. I'm ready for you, all right? Uh, but if, you, if, if you've not been discipled, maybe it's difficult for you to understand how to disciple others. That's why I'm not looking over there. I know one of you's over there. I'm not even looking over there right now. I have a plan for you, my friend. I'm not looking that way, though. <laughs> if you're struggling to understand what does it even mean to be discipled, we do have uh, a process that is meant to be organic. And some of you have been through this with me. And I believe we've really built, we've built some friendships it's, it's meant to be more. It's meant to be more than just words on a page. That I think what Paul did with Timothy, I think what Jesus did with his disciples was he spent life with them. And so I try to, I try to have meals with people. I try to talk about things outside of just what we're dealing with because discipleship's a big nugget, right? But if you need some help understanding what it means, you need some help being equipped, we have a process. And please sign up for that today. If, you, if you're interested, talk to me after if you're interested. The equipping of the saints. I'm all about that. That's, that's my primary task. That's what God has called me to. Number three, here's the third mark. And this one, I hope I've saved some time for, because boy, this one, this one might have hit you. He says peace. He says the building up of believers. And then he says the fear of the Lord. Now that one doesn't sound similar to the others. Peace. And then he says comfort. That's nice. Fear though. What's that word doing in here? What's the fear of the Lord doing in here? Fear is rarely seen in the positive light. And yet he says here something interesting. He says walking. In verse 31 he says walking in the fear of the Lord. This word walking almost every other time in Scripture is a different word than the word that appears here. Normally it's this, this concept of, of, of moving and living. The walking term means to live out. But here, it could have been properly translated going. It's the same word used in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Go ye therefore. It's that word here. And I think maybe there's a reason for that. That Luke here is saying, as the church was on the move, as the church was fulfilling the Great Commission, they had peace and building up and the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Phobos here, where we get phobia. And yet, as often in Scripture, it means this idea of reverence. It means this idea of a lifestyle of holiness. <laughs> Boy, does that seem like it's an unpopular, even in church? How has, that, how has holiness become unpopular, even in church? I listen to a lot of different podcasts. I listen to a lot of different preachers because believe it or not, I'm trying to get better all the time. I don't know if I am. Some of you have been on this journey with me for a while. I think I'm getting better. Maybe not, but I'm trying. And 
I'm listening to other people, listening to other pastors, other churches, trying to figure out how to improve my own craft. But I'm finding that more and more, this idea even of sin is not popular to talk about. That generally people want to give you the fluff, give you the warm and fuzzies. And I do too. I want you to be encouraged because Christ Jesus is amazing. And I want you to know that He's healed you and that redemption is in Him. That's all true. In fact, I would argue that's even better news. That the full truth is even better. The full truth that I'm not good. I'm not okay by myself. I've made mistakes on my own. I've done this thing called sin. And yet Christ Jesus paid for it. That that's a more powerful gospel that I needed Christ and He did it for me and that His his cross, that crucifixion, His resurrection has fully changed my life. That's greater news. So I'm confident in continuing in that. And so this idea here of fear of the Lord, it has to do with piety. It has to do with holiness. It has to do with a sense that we actually care what God thinks. And that means stepping outside of our own bubble some, which I don't know what's going on lately, but it seems like everybody's finding everything in and of themselves. They look in the mirror and say, this is my identity and I care only about what I think. And there's this like self-absorbed kind of thinking. And it doesn't bode well biblically because a church that multiplies is the kind of church that cares what God thinks. And a people that are serious in their faith and see themselves growing in Christ Jesus, looking more and more like Christ every day, they care about what Jesus has to say. And obedience to Him matters. All these really nasty words, right? Holiness and, and repentance and, and uh, discipleship and, and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Do you know that's all there? And Maybe we need to just shake some of the rust off of all these old school words and just say to ourselves, you know what, all of this was intended. And this is what God wanted for us. And it's for our good, not our, not our harm. Obedience, what an unpopular word that is. And yet, it couldn't be more biblical. I'm going to read a couple of guys commenting on the phrase. And I would, I would argue this. If you wanted to do a word search, the fear of the Lord is all throughout the Bible, old and new. It's a popular theme, the fear of the Lord. And, and one commentator says, this is the idea of the temperament of reverential awe. It's the scrupulous obedience to the commandments of God. Scrupulous, that's the idea of being very particular and not trying to miss any. I'm going to faithfully follow Him. Why? Because I love Him. And because I care about what He thinks of me. That's the fear of the Lord. Another writer says, A biblical fear of God includes understanding how much God hates sin and fearing His discipline on sin. While it is done in love, it is still a fearful thing. As children, the the fear of discipline from our parents, no doubt, prevents some evil actions. Now some of you have kids and you know, man, they still do a whole lot of evil actions, but I guess the discipline's helping some. I, I, I feel you. I got four and one of them's a mess. But actually two of them at this point. We'll talk about that later. But I do think discipline helps some. And in the long run, you know, perhaps it will affect their long-term life. Maybe they're still struggling now. But 
The same should be true in our relationship with God, this writer says. We should fear His discipline and therefore seek to live our lives in such a way that pleases Him. That our obedience to Him is because we care. I think a child, when they're particularly obedient, I think it's often because they really love their parents. They really care about what mom or dad think. Underneath disobedience is a sense of not loving your parents as you should or not fearing them as you might should. This idea of obedience, of sincerity of heart. This is what Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Why? Because whatever you do, you work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is a good word to you, my friends, today who are in the workplace and maybe your boss is something else. Maybe your coworkers are, are hard to deal with. You don't work for them. You work for the Lord and that means you're not just people pleasing. You're, you're taking care. You're loving them. You're being obedient. Why? Because you love God. And it will change hearts. Because it's confusing when you're a hard worker and you do what you're told even though this person's an absolute pain in the neck. Because everybody else isn't going to do it. But you will. And it'll change hearts and minds. Oswald Chambers, when writing on this, he says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you feel everything else. You fear everything else. I think there's some truth to that statement, my friends. Sensitivity to sin. I recognize something that, that, you know, this one, this one's a hard hitter this morning. This idea of the fear of the Lord being a part of being a mark of the multiplying church. I recognize that that's a hard hitter. I also recognize that in order to truly take serious obedience and repentance, that those things are necessary for any sense of revival. That until a people become fully aware of how much they need Jesus, they don't get empowered. They, they don't get alive. We have to come to this really odd moment in our life. We have to come to this place where we go, I desperately need a Savior. And I cannot get there unless I'm fully aware of my own brokenness. So the fear of the Lord is the idea that I don't want to be apart from Him anymore. I don't want to do what I used to do. Some of you in the room who've come to faith later in life, you may know this even better than I, that you don't want to go back to who you were. I got saved at a young age, but I recognize this. I don't want to be something other than a follower of Christ. I don't want to go another route because I know in Christ Jesus what He's done for me. And most historians, in fact, would say one of the major features of any revival is always repentance. J.I. Packer, when writing on it, he says there's a sensitivity to sin, a deep awareness of what things are sinful, and how sinful we are is a feature of revival that calls for notice. That is, the perverseness, the guilt, the ugliness of sin is seen and felt with vividness such that the gospel of forgiveness through Christ's cross comes to be loved as never before, as people see their need of it so much more clearly. He put it maybe better than I said earlier, but <laughs> how's your love for the cross? 
How aware of your, are you of your need of it? That's, that's a piece of walking in the fear of the Lord. This needs to begin with you personally. That you make the decision, I follow Christ because I love Him. I follow His statutes, His commandments. I'm obedient to His Word because I love Him. Uh, I, I, there's a fear of the Lord, and, and it's not the fear of, of damnation. Friend, don't hear me say this. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no fear of damnation for you. You've been redeemed. This fear is something else. It's the fear of His displeasure. I've had a pretty good relationship with my parents, and maybe that's not what you had, but I can understand this for my part because I, I never wanted to displease my parents. I wanted them to be proud of me. And maybe you have these kinds of relationships. and you know, Maybe it's a spouse for you or something. You, it's not that you fear that they're going to leave or that they're going to love you, but you fear displeasing them. That's the kind of idea here of Christ, of God, is that I know He will never leave me nor forsake me. He's promised that. And yet, I know I can hurt our community when I'm unrepentant and when I don't follow Him. And I want to restore that. Here's the last and final thing. And I've got to go. Boy, four marks. The fourth mark is the comfort of the Spirit. The comfort of the Spirit. Now this one's funny because in a lot of other passages of Scripture, the word comfort, here it's the word paraclesis. And oftentimes the Spirit Himself is called the paraclete, which is a comforter, an advocate, a, a, a one who, who stands in for you, a mediator. This is the idea of this word paraclesis, which means to comfort. Literally, it means to call alongside. This is what the Holy Spirit of God does in your life. If you're not so sure what the Spirit's doing, He is the one that's calling you into obedience. That, that little voice and some people joke like, I've got this demon over here and I've got this angel over here. That's hogwash. I'll tell you what is going on. The Holy Spirit of God is saying, follow Him. Get back into His Word. Why aren't you in prayer? This is the voice in your soul that's saying, follow Christ. And when you make the right call, it's the one that rejoices. It's the one that calls you out when you're deep in sin. And you go, man, I wish that voice wasn't there. That's the Holy Spirit of God. The one who calls alongside. He's the consoler. He's the exhorter, the encourager, the comforter. This is comfort. One writer says comfort is, however, here somewhat maybe too narrow. That the Greek word here is counsel, exhortation. It's nearly equivalent to prophecy. What he's arguing here is that what might have been meant here is that this is the words of counsel from the Holy Ghost. That His Holy Spirit was the chief agent of the, of the Gospels going out. That they're receiving their power in the Holy Spirit of God. Now this is what Christ promised. In John 14, He says, If ye love Me, keep My commandments. And I pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter. That's the word paraclete there. Comforter. That He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him. But ye know Him. For He dwelleth with you. And you and shall be known in you. So this is what Christ has now promised in us. Now we can walk in it. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians 5. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit of God, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So now in Christ Jesus we have a new walk. The promised Holy Spirit has already been given. If you've put your faith in Christ Jesus, He is with you, calling you alongside. Exhorting you, counseling you, encouraging you in the faith. Joy, love, joy, peace, patience. I wonder, friend, are you walking in the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit today? A multiplying church is marked by these things. It's marked by peace. It's marked by equipping. It's marked by a repentant, obedient fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We've, over the last few weeks, been going through these priorities and transforming, collaborating, multiplying. Underneath it all, church, I hope you've heard one thing, one thing really clearly is that God loves you and has a specific plan for your life and that fits in to what He's doing in the Big C Church. That God is doing something miraculous with you. And I don't have to to perfectly preach every week for that to happen in your life. (laughs) Something magical doesn't have to happen here on a Sunday morning for you to get discipleship that already in your life and we did a series some time ago called who's your one that already in your life people is surrounding God is surrounding you with people that are far from him and it's purposeful and I bet right now it's some of those people that are just bugging you the most he has a funny way of doing that that some of the greatest conversations I've had in my life have been with people that initially I felt friction I don't know why he does that. Maybe it's not like that for you, but for me, it's often been that way. And I think the reason is is that, that we're drawn to each other and somehow it causes division at first. But there's people already in your life. And what a big difference it makes just to say yes to one. Jesus did several more, I get that, but that we can actually make a global impact if we take it seriously personally. And that that's what the church is really about. I hope that you get, if nothing else, you get that one thing that God has personally called you to be a disciple-making disciple. You can pop up the next image for me. This is the kind of church we want to be. One that mobilizes the community. One that builds disciples. One that releases assets. (laughs) That this stuff was never ours to begin with. That the building is open to the community. That our people are, are, are free to, to come and go as God leads them and be on mission for Him. Are you willing to bear, bear these marks of a multiplying church? Finding the peace of Christ? Being equipped for ministry? I've got a, a one opportunity as I finish today. I spent some time this past week over at Your, Your Choice Resource Center. That's the pregnancy center here in Rocky Mountain downtown. And I spent some time with them and they're, they're the 
lovely people over there. They're some of the sweetest people you'll meet and are passionate about some things uh, that might surprise you. You know, that not only are they passionate about mothers and, and people keeping their children, that's something many of us are passionate about, but they're also passionate about the gospel. And that's something I can definitely get behind. I can get behind all of that, but uh, while I was spending time there and I was just checking in and I dropped off our baby bottles and just seeing how things were going and they took me upstairs. I didn't even know that place had an upstairs, uh, but they're trying to do some work up there. And uh, he, I don't know what led him to tell me. I, I don't think he's aware of, you know, I often feel like we're a little church in town. I don't know how you feel about it. You might think we're, we're just getting it. You know, we're going off like, like gangbusters over here praise you for that you know bless you for that but I often feel like a little guy and so when some of these larger organizations in town are like hey you can come help us I'm like okay I'm like I don't know why you're talking to me about that but let's let's try uh anyway they brought me upstairs and like it's completely unfinished up there there's some a little bit of electrical work there's some stuff to do up there and and I thought well what a good way to apply how this thing has finished and and that we're the kind of church who goes out with the Word of God, uses assets. I got to admit, they need like a little bit of electrical work done, some painting, some things that I hate. I'm just going to put that out there, but I'm willing to go. So putting that out there for those of you who are interested, put it on your car, but there's some work, some remodeling needs done over there. And I want to start thinking of more and more of these kinds of things in town that we can do together, whether it's with other churches, whether it's with organizations that are, are, are helping, even if they aren't necessarily gospel-centered, but they're trying to help our city. I want to be that kind of church. And I hope that's where you want to be with the peace of Christ, walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Spirit. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, we, we lay all this at Your feet. I recognize something as I'm preaching this and just thinking for myself that these marks, they have to come from You. That we lack the power really to have this kind of peace. That we often, when it, when it comes to the idea of fearing you, Lord, we often struggle with the fear of man or even just caring more about our own personal comforts or whatever. That a lot of times this idea of fear of the Lord sort of slips, slips back into some second or third priorities, Lord. And I recognize that struggle even in my own life, Lord, so I know that's probably a struggle for many that we would get this stuff out of order sometimes. That the idea of this kind of peace that reconciles, it's a lot easier for us, Lord, to just stay mad at people. It's a lot easier for us too, Lord, to just um, hold grudges. It's a lot easier for us to not experience this kind of peace, but... We know in Christ Jesus you've given it and given it overflowing. And I'm praying that over myself. I'm praying that over your church, this congregation today, that the peace of Christ which transcends all understanding would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I'm praying that. That you would build us up. Help us to get really serious about the growth of one another in this place. That's what's unique, I think, about the early church, is that these people were really, really aware of how much they needed Christ and how much they needed one another and how important it was to begin to build one another's faith. 
I, I don't think we've even scratched the surface on what that might indicate for us as a church, that we would get really serious about that person sitting to our left, left and right, that person sitting in front of us, that we would, we would care so much that they're growing to be more like Christ Jesus. That would be a unique kind of movement of God that uh, people who care very deeply about the spiritual maturity of those around them, including themselves. God, God, that you would do something amazing in this place. Build a culture where we really care more about what you think of us than anything else. More, more about what, what you would have us do and how you have called us and, and the discipline and obedience of the Lord. That would be our, our, our whole being. That we would be about that above all other things. That would drive out the fear of man. That would drive out even some other expectations we've put on ourselves that were not from you, God. I pray, I pray that that's modeled in this place. And that the comfort of the Holy Spirit would be evident here. I pray this every morning with my team before we even get started. The presence of the Holy Spirit is your work, Lord. We can only pray for it and beg for it. And yet I know you, you show up in a mighty way. I pray your comfort falls on this place. Your encouragement. I recognize, my friends, that maybe you've showed up today and some of this, I mean, it sounds like good news, but at this point it's hard to understand how to have the peace of Christ when I don't yet have Christ. If that's you today, you're feeling the Lord's call on your life. You would like to have this peace. You would like to have this, this kind of care, this kind of fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You want that for yourself, and yet you've not taken step one. And that is a repentant heart that says Christ is crucified and I believe it. If that's you today and you feel the Lord calling you towards Himself, I would ask you to pray with me according to the Scripture. It says if we confess with our mouths in Romans chapter 10, it says if, if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. This is part of the confession of faith. If that's you today, please pray with me a prayer of confession. Saying, Jesus, I believe You are Lord of my life. I believe that today. What that means to me is that you're in charge. You're, you're my Lord. You're my King. I'm putting you in charge of my life's purpose. I believe that today. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. That is my, my, my wrongdoings, my brokenness, my shame, my guilt. I believe today you hung that on the cross and I, it's been paid for. I'm so thankful for that today, Jesus. And God, I believe you raised Christ from the dead. And that gives me amazing hope. I believe in the resurrection. And that gives me hope beyond this place. That gives me a peace, in fact, that transcends understanding. Now God, I'm asking, guide my life now. As Lord of my life, guide my life according to your purpose. And we pray all that with you, dear friend. If you said that prayer, welcome to the family of God. And we are praying alongside you. God, help us to be the kind of church that multiplies, that takes very seriously this somewhat simple command of go and make disciples. I pray that, I pray that everyone in here would get it, but even if just a handful of people would really feel the, the sense of mission and the sense of encouragement that I just need to pour my life out into one person this year. I can do that. 
God, I pray you would encourage us with that. And begin to present to people in their workplaces, in their neighborhoods, that one. I I pray if they've not met this person yet, that it happens this week. That you would put people in our lives that you are are on the hunt for. And that you want us to be a part of their discipleship process. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.